Welcome to the Crash Courts Podcast, episode 152. I, of course, am Matt. I'm John. I am Steve. Um, a little homage to our friends over at the Epic Podcast. I always enjoy how Nelson goes deep with the episode number. Um, we're going to jump right into our album review this week. I don't have any news, so let's move on. You haven't had news in a while. Yeah, I've been busy doing nothing for a change, which has been splendid. Busy doing nothing. But I'm going to Warp Tour this weekend, so I'll have news next week, I'm sure. Well, stick at it. It's a lot of work. Mm. It is a lot of work doing nothing. Yeah. Anyway, this week I chose to delve into jazz with a new band, Twin Danger. The band had brought together Stuart Matthewman and Vanessa Blay, uh, two individuals that have been in and out of the jazz community for quite some time. And they came together and created a new sound, a new band. Something that I really didn't think jazz was kind of doing anymore. Yeah, in fact, Stuart Matthewman uh, was in a longtime English funk and soul band called Shade. And yes, I believe that's exactly how it's fit. Shade. Even though it's S-A-D-E. S-A-D-E. Like and I thought it was Sade. Sade. Thank, yeah. you, thank you for correcting well, me before well, I got to make that thank mistake. You. Actually, I believe Wiki it's pronounced Sh- Shade, I thought. But, then, but the day was in caps. Uh, and the Shah wasn't. Shade. But I, I don't know. I feel like I've heard it pronounced Shade, but maybe I'm wrong. All right, well, I'll just call it Shade Day, and, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Anyway, talking about Vanessa, on the other side, she's actually the daughter of Paul Blay, who for about 50 years or so was a jazz pianist. Very prominent jazz pianist. Um, and then alongside that, they brought in a lot of other folks here. Uh, bassist Lenny Grenadier, uh, a longtime associate of trumpetist Chet Baker, who is extremely popular circa maybe 30 years ago, but still very popular. You will also hear pianist Gil Goldstein, associated with Billy Cobham, Miles Davis, and Sting. Trumpeter Michael Lionheart from Steely Dan, Jen Sleckman, and Rufus Wainwright. And drummer Joe Bonadio, from, also from Sting, Grover Washington Jr., and Chris Bodie. That's a lot of connections. Crazy connections. And this, though they are not present, uh, the latter, the two primaries, obviously, are Stuart Matherman and, uh, and Vanessa Blay. But the rest of them make frequent appearances on this album. So you're dealing with some pretty big names and some pretty refined influences. Which is why I want to take a couple minutes and the first ten seconds of the first track as a sample to discuss what we're going to be looking at in the broad here. Pointless satisfaction. The first 10 seconds will clearly reveal a very classic jazz setup. Now to say classic is not to say that jazz isn't a forerunning genre at the moment, but at least in the minds of music goers, there is the feeling that jazz takes a backseat and loves being in the backseat. As if to say, yeah, yeah, I know that you partied your day out to your pop and to your rock, but when it's 3 a.m. and the city's got you down and you're ready to give in to carnal temptation, I know who you're coming back to. That's right, jazz. And that would be me creepily anthropomorphizing the genre. Uh, this is an allusion to experimental jazz. I'm talking about the persistence and impact of jazz as it existed circa its golden era. You could have heard this stuff in the 50s and not thought twice about it. You could have heard it in the 60s and not thought twice about it. And the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and thousands. We're talking about this late night club crooner thing that has existed for the duration of those 60 years. 
that light swing backdrop filled out by the brushes on the snare, the clean jazz guitar, comping for the more primary instrument in this case, which favors the saxophonist, obviously, that's half the core group. Uh, but that also has that very rich and breathy sound. So everything about this backdrop is just so sensual and so contemplative. Can you blame the fact that no one holds this brand of jazz to the same standard as we do, say, various other groups, various other genres, like alt or indie rock? Think about that. Like, like, could you imagine approaching any of these songs and saying, oh, that is so 2005. Like, all of a sudden, our rating chart has been kind of thrown off because this, this clearly has staying power just by being in the public eye for so many years. It's desirable. Maybe not by everyone, but like I said, it spans generations, it binds generations, and projects a certain paradigm of the era, as opposed to simply a paradigm of the times, which is what we're usually looking at. And not to be so on the nose about defining the essence of jazz, but what you're hearing here is these echoes of post-industrial bleakness or of post-modernist dysphoria, things that still do persist, hence the music persists with it. It defies the word fad, and while there could be internal arguments made, perhaps, that alternative hip-hop has maybe supplanted this style of jazz with similar approaches and a more 21st century touch, I don't think this stuff is in any danger of being outed in the public consciousness. We all listen to it from time to time, even if only for fascination's sake. And the last comment I want to make here is on jazz and the concept of, of complexity that I think keeps a lot of people away. Complexity is something that people see in a certain genre, and they're like, hmm, I'm... Maybe it's not for me, or maybe it's for people who understand it. But jazz isn't really built that way. Jazz is actually built around the same structures that build up pop and, and rock and most of the music that circulates today. That pop structure with the verse and chorus. The only thing that may be very complex about it is some of the chord progressions, not all of them, and maybe uh, at the top of the list, the solos, which usually do demand some uh, knowledge of theory. Well, what I would say and step in with here briefly is that what I've noticed, at least since over the summer I went to like four weddings in the span of a month and a half, is this uh, kind of fad that's emerged. Is There's a, band, a very well-known band at this juncture um, called Postmodern Jukebox. Mm -hmm. And they their shtick is they cover, they do jazz covers of pop music, and they do it very well. And I think, and it's become popular dinner music at almost every wedding, including my own. Mm -hmm. That's what we ate dinner to. And I think it's because... The familiarity of the songs keeps people invested, but the, the smooth jazz makes it still kind of stay in the background, and it's popular background music. That's not saying that it's only background music, but I've just noticed that trend. So when you're talking about it having similar structures to pop, you know, it's just, you know, there are certain specific differences. I believe that since this band has been able to take modern top 40 over the last decade and turn it into, you know, Jazz. Yeah, that's the shtick. And then, of course, the other shtick of jazz being the fact that they constantly remake. They built themselves off of jazz standards, which were infinitely coverable. So the idea is you just have this small little group that gets together and then goes to the uh, the fake book or whatever you want. They go to the book that of all these jazz standards that have been around for like 50, 60 years. And then it's just like, all right, let's make of it something wildly fresh and wildly new, despite the fact that it's been done 50 billion times, it's still, that's kind of part of the exercise of jazz in a way. So that's clearly the exercise of postmodern juice box. They just step outside of the fake book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as Steve said, the first track is Pointless Satisfaction. Um, so that intro that he was talking about, of course, starts with a beautifully smooth saxophone, which, you know, as someone who's not a huge consumer of jazz, I would have expected saxophone maybe not that specific arrangement but you know saxophone a smoky saxophone start 
is definitely something I would expect from jazz in general. <laughs> and then throwing in this almost wandering nature of the guitar, they're obviously already playing off one another. I mean, your main two main musicians, one's a saxophonist guitarist, one's a vocalist guitarist. There's going to be a lot of guitar going on in here. But having the saxophone really take that center stage uh, almost instantly cements it iconically jazz under under the name itself. Yeah, people picture that smoky backdrop, and there is like a noirish thing, like I said, the whole 3 a.m. feel. But um, there's something about this, this, the composition of this intro that isn't terribly improv to me. It strikes me mm. as being very, very written because you say they're they're playing off of each other. It, it It's almost like they're playing off of each other a little bit too well here, and that's not a criticism. Frankly, I love music that has been more refined and, and, and composed, perhaps, and I suspect that at least this intro is. Um, just the way the guitar creeps forward in prominence and rises with the saxophone just for these first few bars, it's absolutely gorgeous. And yet the whole setup here mostly surrounds just two chords. You're a E minor, D major, I think. And then after several bars, we do kick it up again with um, with a walking bass. And this is a true walking bass this time, because I often do find myself just like citing things as like kind of sort of walking bass. This is that, you know, beat for beat, just moving us along with a few little... Uh, few little alterations, and then some backup saxophones, or maybe backup trumpets, I think, in the background. Uh, both of them, I think, are prevalent, at least in other places in this album, and they really step forward with the comping here. If anything, more sparsely than uh, than a true comping instrument for the duration of verses. Instead, they come in in key moments, accents. It's really quite gorgeous. And then, of course, let's talk about the obvious, the vocalist. Yes. Um, who it's interesting that you mentioned uh, postmodern jukebox, because actually there's something about this, this vocalist here, um, Vanessa Blay, that reminds me a lot of a vocalist who I found within postmodern jukebox, or at least who worked with postmodern jukebox, and that's Kate Davis, who I first heard in a, in a kind of one of the stupidest references I'm about to make in light of such, you know, mature music going on here, but that's the postmodern jukebox cover of I'm All About That Bass by Megan Trainor. Right. And Kate Davis is, in fact, an upright bassist herself so yeah. there's an inherent little joke there i'm all sure. about that bass meanwhile she's making love to an upright bass and singing at the same time which is an incredible right. talent but the vocal quality here is what i'm getting at and that's just there's something similar there although people also say that about jazz vocalists in in general there's a there's an, a stylistic approach that you will find some commonalities between them but also certain little differences some of them take a more husky approach her range though is more toward the alto soprano it's it's very, very smooth. And it's actually kind of in contrast to something I noted just last week uh, in another female vocalist, that would be Florence Welch. And she had this tendency to accentuate these breath marks for the sake of her melodies. Whereas here, I find that the, the, the task is really more to mask them and keep them in the background. Instead, with uh, Vanessa Blay, it's all just about to convey that smoothness, the way she builds up certain phrases and then just tapers them off. It's all about that approach and that decay, which is just effortless. You barely even know that it's happened before it's happened. And it's done, and her voice just like stepped in and out of the album, and it, it, it managed to to mystify you in the process. I love that approach. There's something very, very sensual about it. The whole smoky orientation of her voice, coupled with, like you say, the, the pitch itself, it almost becomes a purr towards the end of her syllables, yeah. towards the end of her phrasing. And that's something that's kind of hard to, to pull off without really just, like, actually purring. The whole just almost quaver, but it stays a little bit too streamlined to be called the quaver. It's... It's gorgeous when she does it, when she really starts pulling out the stops and starts extending those syllables. You know, it's it's funny because it's there in the verses, and then I find that it's really accentuated by the chorus, which is this very sparse, 
uh, breakdown of the words pointless satisfaction, just the, the title of the track, and she slows it down into this sort of hemiola pointless satisfaction, all the way down to each and every syllable. I love that breakdown. Rhythmically, it's actually almost like what I was describing last week, again, in another Florence uh, and the Machine song. I think that was the third track in which mm. I described the rhythmic approach, how it was all dictated by the vocals itself. Well, here, granted, of course, you do have the underlying rhythm, but there's just that, that punch and power to the vocal rhythm that I think commands so much respect. And then, well, cue your other jazz tropes, the uh, saxophone solo, but you gotta love it. You know, in this first track, it's all about being immersed into this environment. And the complementing nature of a lot of the instruments, it's as they're getting introduced, these uh, transitional parts aren't, aren't really even noticeable quite at first. You're about a half a second, a second into it, before you realize that you've actually introduced another instrument, that you've changed up the, the beat itself, the percussion itself, or the guitar itself. That is another interesting aspect that I don't really see in too many other forms of music, but seems to just work so well right here. You, you don't notice transitions, and that's a great part of this album as a whole and this song in general. Well, that's a back and forth. I mean, I will say that I notice transitions, but yes, there is a constancy to the backdrop that you can kind of take the song all at once, I think, in a way. Uh, like, in a, in a sense, the saxophone kind of steps forward to just... Uh, step in for the vocals. It feels like, well, they're kind of talking about the same thing. Funny the picture of saxophone talking, but that's kind of what solos do, especially well-written solos. Um, and I also just heard a, a phrase, play toward the song, which is actually, I, I learned recently from a writer under the site, Tony Catalano, playing toward the song uh, means to sort of bring out the the best of the melodies in your in your verses and courses themselves within the solo and reflect them very closely, which is something we often go back to. It's what we love to see in solos. And I, I heard that instantly here. But I did notice that form-wise, this track had a tendency just to kind of end. And it does have that like solid block. It's there, it's gone, and well, that's it. Which does bring some mind, which does bring to mind perhaps some broader critiques maybe of the genre as a whole, that the form can be just as rigid as many pop structures. The solo trade-offs, you know, could be described as campy. But I, I never really knew whether to think of the genre or whether I thought of the genre like be, as valuing the virtuosity more than atmosphere or atmosphere more than genre, but it made me perhaps more forgiving of that style. I think it makes a lot of people more forgiving of that style because if they're immersed, they don't, they don't, they don't really care about the structure or the repetitiveness of the structure as it's existed as a form for decades. I feel like for me personally, as someone who enjoys jazz when he's in it, but doesn't go out of his way to find it, that at least in this first track, I'm immersed. There's no moment where I'm pulled out of it. I mean, even when we get towards the end and we get that trumpet solo, like, I loved that trumpet solo. And yeah, that was at the tail end there. It was just, the, the great thing about it is we started with the saxophone intro that wasn't just the same note over and over again. It wasn't a cliche. It wasn't, a, you know, a gimmick. It was saxophone. And we got to rest with it for a while. Same with this outro. Like, the trumpet comes in, and at first, you can almost on the first note think possibly it's the saxophone again. But then as he continues to play, you know that it's a trumpet player. And it's just, it's well done, and it's a great way to wrap up the track. That also brings me to another point of this, this song and the album in general. One of my themes will be subtlety. This song is all about the subtleties of introducing that walking bass, of introducing the horns. You don't get them thrown in your face too often. To have your, yourself questioning whether it's a sax or a trumpet, or to hear that, that, that outro kind of just fall off and you start losing elements, but you don't quite hear where they used to be. It's, it's just a practice in being able to transition very well. 
Yeah, it wasn't so much a question, I think, of mistaking the two instruments to my ears, but I do notice that they have the same stylistic approach, which yeah. can kind of make them blend together. But as I said, it's all about making the track as a whole blend together. So, yeah, I agree. Rather than harp on form, you have to be more impressed by the tightness of the group here. Let's go to track two, The Coldest Kind of Heart. Now, admittedly, this was pretty unexpected, and this is the first case, uh, as I hinted at earlier, where we're going to get some tracks that actually defy the overall style. Not quite that, you know, uh, throwback 1950s jazz style. This uh, kind of acknowledged, I think, a more modern approach, but in a, in a very, very different way. Um, almost in a, like, an R&B soul way, like that of the kind that you would probably find like in, in the mid-90s or early 90s. Um, it was dominated to me and, and, and sort of forged to me by this keyboard effect that had a very slow vibrato or, or pulsation, in fact. Since it's synthetic, we'll just call it a pulsation. It's very even. And then the jazz guitar is still there, so you have some crossover elements, but it's a lot more melodic now, and it's caught up in this, this whole misty reverb setting. So I got a very, like, humid environment from this track. Um, and then enter vocals, and we have even more crossover, because her voice is always a constant. Well, the voice and the bass come in about the same time at this point, and yeah, that's what kind of builds it out to feel more jazz. Exactly. But before that, yeah. It's a very confusing first bars. <laughs> it, well, for me, I, as someone who doesn't really know what to expect from jazz all the time, and considering how um, improvisatory and virtuosic Chick Corea was, which was my previous experience with it. Episode 57, check it out. This this kind of it didn't seem far-fetched it just definitely seemed different from the first track for sure what the tr first track was setting up yeah. but that said once her vocals come in and we get some of those swells that come with the vocals like now it feels like what it's like at least being... based on a very first impression what i would expect from twin danger it's like you're being sort of re-smacked with the uh, with the stereotypes of it all. Yeah, but, yeah. but it's it's still great stuff. You have the vocals and you have the chord progressions here. I love just it, it occurring over this like G minor ninth to the D minor ninth. You know, just playing around the upper partials there. Of course, that's very jazz. You have to have denser chords. Um, I love the tones here. Uh, but even it gets jazzier because uh, it, rather it gets more old-fashioned jazzier and then uh, around the time of the chorus because here it's still like a more jazz standard approach. It brings back the more traditional chord progressions at this time as opposed to just the density and said it's more open and more and more uh, jazz standard-ish, you know, like that you'd find of, of one of the greats, but something more friendlier, not the underground stuff. Well, one of the defining factors for me in this song was that the, it was less of a comping instrument, the bass itself, and it was sort of just following the vocals around. And that was a little bit curious because I couldn't just see it as trying to comp her. They're too too far apart as far as sound goes to really do a good job of, of blending together. That bass, as she's singing, just is sort of half a second to even with her and what she's doing, but it's just accenting what she's saying. But in a very, very, once again, subtle kind of a way, and a very, almost a lost puppy kind of a way. Yeah. It's that constant companion that's following her around and just being the companion. Yeah, and that also, yeah, that coincides really with that, that more friendly chorus approach. Although I do have to say that toward the end of that chorus, I had something that kind of shocked me. It was my first, like, aha moment on this album that really reached out, and it's not just, you know, jazz blending into the background. Very, very pleasant. Love it all. But... You gotta go for the moments here. Um, at, when, at the end of this chorus, you get this this full-on like G minor 11th, this this swell uh, on an, an accent here. 
with the the saxophone backdrop, I believe it was actually the, uh, the saxophone and the trumpet coming together with perhaps another instrument in there. I'm not entirely sure. But then there was like this added passing 13th, just sexy as hell. I wish there were actually more of those in this album, but we do get um, a few later in this song. I absolutely adored that. It's just this beautiful accent, this, this uh, periodic swell that just... Um, compliments uh the closing of these choruses before we go back to the verses it's it's a wonderful like the moment you wait for on the second track those moments really rounded out the emotionality of the song kind of giving it this beautifully tragic kind of feel yeah. you know just kind of wrapping you up in this you know f- almost forlorn kind of feeling but also like that late night romanticism yeah well the whole thing starts off with i told you to look at the sky when you need to think of me but tonight, only clouds you can find. How lonely you must be. I mean, right away, this yeah. is obviously separated lovers. This is obviously somebody, another city, another town, another place. Distance has separated two individuals that deeply want to be together. Going further, lay your head down, oh, close your eyes, and forget all compromise. Such a shame we're so far apart, the coldest kind of heart. And that kind of unusual personification of love the coldest kind of heart it's not not just tragic not just forlorn it's a different kind of a take because you don't usually think of someone in love having a cold heart it's a nice little use of imagery that I don't see too often. But it is also like a forbidden element here. Like mm-hmm. kind of what I was saying before, like, yeah, three more, you always come back to it. There is like this, I think this seedy element that people always kind of just associate with jazz in the back of their mind. Sure. Because they know it came with the nightclub scene, which tended to be, you know, it had a seedy underbelly, even going back to the 50s. It, in fact, was was there, you know, people they were people were told to avoid that environment. Well, because it was big into the mob scene, you know, jazz the mob clubs, scene, yeah. the drug scene, and now yeah, all yeah, of that. Yeah. Um, so then you, when you, certainly this is appropriate considering this, this, this swell here around the time of the chorus and the lyrics go, is it wrong that in us it feels right? How the world makes some sense for a while and time is on hold for what seems like reality. The second chorus, skipping the verse, is it wrong that in us feels right? How the world makes some sense for a while and time is on hold for what seems like eternity. So I go from reality to eternity. All of a sudden it's just like this... You know, we're pausing the moment just to give in. You know, obviously that's a very, very old phrase. Well, what? how could something so, you know, so wrong feel so right? Or was it vice versa? How could no, something so right feel so wrong? No, it's the other way around. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right, right. right. yeah. There you go. Yeah, but I mean, it's just that giving in. You know, yeah. you feel that. And it's particularly in these swells. And I find that the track in some way kind of drifts between the more uh, lighthearted romanticism that I actually get in the chord progressions of the chorus. But then by the time we get down to those final words, like reality, like eternity, then you get that swell. And it's just, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden, this isn't, this, isn't, uh, this isn't your mother's romance. <laughs> right. And I mean, there are shades of that. And it probably was. <laughs> That's the, uh, well, the irony here. Yes, considering, yes, you're saying all of our listeners' parents are old. We get it. Yeah, well, I'm saying that probably all generations had their fair share oh, yeah, of for sure. uh, experiences. No, nothing is new. You're, when your parents tell you, oh, I've been there, I've done that, they're usually right because they've there you are. approached it at some point or another. Um, but what I also like about this song is it's a great lead into the next track, too, because we're starting to see, especially from two to three, this kind of emotional arc building it's still a little obscured but there's definitely love 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 and and wanting and passion are definitely intertwined somehow yeah jazz makes no pretenses about uh, about using those themes and harping on them yeah, yeah and track three i love in parentheses loving you 
well, right there. It's right it's, there. Yeah, on the I mean, love and passion is at the forefront of the song, and it's very clear from the moment it starts. And the 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 vocals and the lyrics, the lyrics themselves are already speaking much more strongly to doing a a more kind of wholesome whole love theme. It's definitely breathier than previous tracks. Somehow I do everything I must do, but here goes a little song for you. There's a bird in a sky, and here we are, you and I. And I recall the thrill of, the thrill of it all. Love that. And, and no, is... wait, wait, wait. One more thing. Thrill. That first thrill. Yeah. Has such a beautiful pitch change. Well, the thing about that, Oof. That, the thing about that part, too, is made me and John independently, without hearing each other mention it, look up the Dick Tracy movie and the character that Madonna plays cause, from the comics named Breathless Mahoney because her kind of smoky room singer persona is exactly what's being encapsulated here. And also, but yeah, because we've returned to a lot of the, uh, actually rather to different cliches. In yeah. fact, I would say I would actually hazard the guess that we've moved one jo- one decade earlier yeah. uh, from the 50s back to the 40s. Uh, we're looking at, we're back to the whole swing thing here again, but just something about this like noble saxophone trumpet combo playing in in unison for this hook yeah you can almost picture like a bunch of guys in white suits the band line you know the very very just like straight laced group uh and they play their vibrato in tandem this has been rehearsed and it's really 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 sexy because but in a, in an old-timey kind of way to go along with what you just envisioned and uh what was her name again oh uh, breathless mahoney breathless mahoney love that that old school unison kind of uh uh play style for the horns also was a little bit more background you weren't seeing the horns or any of the pieces just like standing out the same way we had seen in the yeah, first well, they few step tracks in, they step in for the hook they come back every single hook is kind of like a narration to the story now if you had to talk about i guess the real sexy element, but of course it is the vocalist i mean the vocals here are just dripping with flirtation something that that is rarely as on the nose in other genres i think because of the fact that that jazz is always playing around with the themes of love but it's like the whole concept behind this was that she's trying to evoke this feeling very, very directly. In effect, almost like eerily fooling you into believing that she's trying to turn you on right now. That's right. You, you, the listener singing in your ear. And that, that can come across as very, I mean, just even despite like the 1940s element, it's like taking a trip back through time here, you know, and, and feeling really, really in the mix. As opposed to just listening to like an old vinyl, this is, you know... You, you have taken that trip. You're back in the 40s, and you're getting seduced. Well, look at the, the chorus itself. I love loving you. <laughs> Why is it such a shame? I love loving you. I believe in love. Now, it doesn't <laughs> it sound preachy. Campy. It doesn't but... sound preachy. It doesn't sound like she's pleading or trying to convince you. It sounds natural, but you're right. There is a little bit of a twinge there. I feel like a little it's, bit of too much reiteration yeah. of the theme. No, I feel like it sounds that. like someone who's just really in love and sh- expressing as such. Like it feels that simple to me. And also, yeah, it's about the way in which she sings it. Like there's really you ha- you can't just focus on the words. You need to focus on the inflection. Sure. And and you know again with those. In fact, here in this case, she's she accentuates the breathy mark, something she didn't do with uh, the previous tracks where she was concealing them. Here, it's it's there because she wants that breathy sensual effect yeah so yeah you'd um you'd probably expect that i think a track like this probably will remain fairly constant and it does there's not a lot of change-ups in the mix um and that's because it's it's really just like a feeling wrapped up in a song well, so it, you can take it in one shot 
Well, and also the instrumentation is designed to push her vocals forward. While they're fairly stand out on their own, in this song, the the arrangement is designed so her like vocals take saying, the center stage. Yeah, like I was saying about the horns. Horns can easily overpower a, a vocal part if you're not very you know conscious of what they're doing. Having them in unison but background-oriented as, a for, as opposed to foreground... Does does do a lot. It's more. always that 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 trumpet and the saxophone just like in tandem, just like you know one with the other. They never really, I think, break and do something independent. At least not not to my recollection. Or at least I'm just talking about the hook. That is. Next track, track four, just because, we start with the same kind of noir feeling we'd gotten earlier on in track two. Yeah, pretty much from the get go. It's got that smooth, dark kind of feel that you expect from a noir kind of scene. It it's, almost slaps you in the face with the horns right away. It's just noir, big. Not not the horn. This was the saxophone. This yeah. was that you get the sax effect. And you remember that's 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 in the Woodwind family and it still has that's why it's able to give the breathiness that I think a lot of a lot of horns, a lot of brass instruments can't quite do. Or if they do get the breathy sound, they have that they have that that higher range like like almost like that whistle that goes along with it. Instead with with woodwinds you get the warm, you know, that depth. And but it's not just that here. It's something else that I think gave this uh, a character that was that was even more separate from track 2. We're still in the same ballpark and that's the kind of the second album that we're building here. But in this case it's the guitar the that t- steps forth forward the, here. It's a very tinny nature. It's it's like they sh- they changed out the strings for something that it's was It's twangy. It's like metallish. Exactly. Exactly. Um, metalish. <laughs> metalish, metalish. But it's also the chord changes within there that are the most fascinating. And they actually conflict with the saxophone. They meander like back and forth between satisfaction and uneasiness. And I mean this like between each and every group of broken chords. One one broken chord is, is a more satisfying like major chord. Then all of a sudden after that it goes down to like a diminished or something. I'm not sure. I didn't break this down like chord by chord. I do it with some tracks. I didn't do it with this one and I should have because this is I mean, it's, I can't even quite call it eeriness. It's just, I don't know, this is the stuff that gets me, and it feels like this is, this has this, this split direction in terms of feeling and approach, and we may very well get that in the lyrics as well. Well, we did, like, at first, when I first heard this song upon an initial listen, it, the slow crawl kind of gave way to what I thought was loss and darkness and sadness, but upon reading the lyrics, the song is actually more kind of sultry and about love still. It's sultry and, mm. and equally split. There's a charm and there's a mystery. Yeah. And, and a little sense of uncertainty just because. I pretend and I really try. Tell myself I'll still get by just because. The whole back song, yeah, the back and forth is, is inherent because this is this isn't love. It's conflicted. Whatever it is, no, it's, it's not conflicted. even. Confl- it, it's it's more akin to something like uh, superficial love, more akin to just the lust aspect of love, just Which we trying got to hook in, up in previous tracks. But this is just like right in your face. Yeah, it's a little forlorn, but that's because the love is kind of hollow here. Well, and the little... tinny guitar does that. The conflicting nature does that. It, it's setting a very specific stage but the the stage is a very gray area and it's 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 more direct with that in the chorus is it me with whom you'd like to be love will come and go but it's here deep inside me moving real slow there's no words there's no sympathy barely time for a memory just because kiss me softly no surprise anytime or place you like just because it it's really constantly back and forth first of all no words no sympathy this, this is it is still kind of that giving in but it's being 
much more on the fritz about it, you know, doing it just because. There's there's, there's not love here. There's not investment. It seems it's, just... It seems to be going back and forth in her consciousness, you know, in her in her right-minded consciousness, like, you know, by the second as to whether she should be doing this, whether it should be happening, but given in just because. Well, that's why I think the conflict was that I was stating earlier. It's kind of it's an internal struggle of whether, you know, you should or not, but ultimately she is. Because she's thinking about she is, how yeah. she just... Just because. And at the end of the day, it almost comes off as, like, the greatest pickup line of all time. In, in, in a lot of ways. Especially that chorus. And the chorus, Let's I want to say... Let's do it just because. <laughs> just because. But it no, is pretty romantic, the, isn't that? It's like, well, you know, I'm not going to let things get in my way. But that chorus, it's not just the words, but the presentation, frankly, is probably the sexiest thing I have heard on this podcast. I, I was... I almost fell in love with her just listening to that chorus, especially... That's all part of the game of the jazz vocalist, yeah. again, to really, really fooling you into believing she's talking to you. The, the final parts of that chorus were moving real slow, and what she does to the word slow, she takes it, drops it down, and then just, there's no other way to put it, she climaxes the word at the <laughs> end of that chorus. That's right. And it is... It is no innuendo withheld. It's just pure sensuality at that point. Yeah, and and also again, it's just it's it's the chords to me that accentuate the uneasiness, but all ultimately really do give in. There's also more of a um, I think an experiment in in the vocals themselves that come with uh, the secondary vocalist. I, I I believe this is the moment you're talking about, John. It's not just her. I believe it's a backup vocalist or perhaps that secondary track. We never quite know, but this sounds like uh, dual vocalists. Um, it's the way in which she glissandos from note to note, and the second does it as well, that almost sounds like piano strings tuning. They sound like they're being tugged in one direction. And then the second vocalist sounds like they're being tugged in one direction, but not evenly and not completely in sync. And they land at different notes, and they ultimately harmonize when they get there. I love that dual-action approach, because it actually sounds like her, either her heartstrings are being tugged or just, you know, flat-out uh, impulses being tugged. Tugged, but I love that rising up two at a time, but not all at once. It's one of probably one of my favorite moments on the album, and I, I do have several favorite moments on this album. But there's also a few more things we could discuss. Uh, for instance, the fact that the phrases in this track are kind of kind of interrupted, or, or various stages of of interruptions, specifically. Like when the breathy sax that steps forward at the beginning of a pickup for a phrase, when it's just off on itself, it steps in with a triplet uh, before diving into that primary uneasy chord progression, as I've described, almost kind of interrupts the previous phrase before it. The phrase before it could have gone on, and I believe that was toward the end of these, uh, toward the end of these verses. But then we just go straight into the chorus, Is It Me With Whom You'd Like To Be? I absolutely love that interrupting style. It makes it feel like this track is constantly restarting itself from moment to moment. Um, and then it's just like, oh, well, let's do it again. Let's do the cycle again. It's, it's all cyclical. It's all not at her will, it seems. It's, it, it ends up, for me, being like the personification of a serial dater or... Not the not the most hygienic of individuals. Someone who's just <laughs> one night stand over and over oh, and clear. over I'm again. Sure, we've been dancing around that. It's exactly what I what I hear here. It's just it's an over sexualized person who's not really looking for death. Not in the long haul, and most certainly not in the short haul. They just want satisfaction. That's right. Just shut up. We'll do it. <laughs> That's there you go. Essentially, what this uh, song boils down to. Well, but I love the musical approach here, and it takes a really, really fantastic, uh, 
fantastic style to convey that because it's this has been done thematically but not in this sense not in this delivery well the other angle of this could be within that conflict a confidence you know when just saying like doing it just because it's like you want sex and that's what you want and there's nothing wrong with that and so you're focused on just getting that right but this is where jazz i think does something to me that other genres can't quite do mm -hmm. as i said this has been done before it's been done in rock many countless times but i feel like there's not really this like standardized or 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 um or tailored approach right. but this is something that jazz is much more attuned to when you get that you it evokes this feeling you sure. know when you're placed there and almost feel like yeah yeah all right <laughs> let's let's go along with it um and it winds up being very ethereal in the process which is another reason why i absolutely adore this track so from there we'll go into a track that i i think pulled back a little i i took it as more of an intermission considering that uh, a tracks two and tracks four carried the, the biggest emotional in brunt the biggest emotional impact on this album to me so far but in track five for save it we pull back a little more into that standard walking bass kind of like we had in the first track uh it first actually starts off with the piano intro that is a little more modern but then goes into the walking bass with very easy going um and frankly it's it's more than like an easygoing track as a whole. It, 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 it's, you don't get the same sense of confliction as you do. You just, this is going along with it, but it's not for something as, as sensually oriented. Well, this song is more upbeat and, and kind of just crooning, but it's not, yeah, it's not the same kind of sexualization that the last track had had. It's definitely kind of more peppy and it's fairly steadier also comparative to the last track, which did have highs and lows and kind of went all over and kind of experimented. This one kind of stays fairly... Uh, reserved. It's also got more prominent percussion. What I mean by that is in other previous tracks, we kind of had sporadic and very interesting and unique percussion, whereas here we've got kind of a fairly standard it rhythm. takes this track along, exactly. Yeah. Um, to go to the, to the lyrics themselves, though, uh, save it for the lost. Don't mind if we try. Because I feel it, but I want you to know that it takes time. It, if it's done right, to grow. And I, I don't mind if it is right. Passing through the times, once thought out of sight, cause we need it, and we want it for sure. And it goes by, if we fall back, you know, and I, I don't care if it's right. It seems to be following up upon the same exact, uh, theme, but there's something that's just so much more carefree about this. I don't know, I feel like I've been whis taken out of this environment for some reason. I feel like it's daytime now, it's not 3 a.m., it's 3 p.m., and you're just walking along with someone in the street, and it's like, well... Maybe it isn't right, but yeah, you know, frankly, who cares? You know, there's not the same, I think, sense of guilt or of... Well, that's uh, because of the fact that there's really just no conflicting sounds of the instruments. They really are, every little piece, just playing a lot more in unison than what we're really used to. They are complementing each other to a much busier degree, a much further degree than what we were experiencing when we start talking about having, you know, a piano keyboard setups, you know, actually f competing with a guitar or something like that. Here, everything is working in unison to support her vocals. But that said, being so much busier, it's not as engrossing as the previous track. It's not as engaging because you're not, you know, trying to pick out the percussion line or the walking bass or the guitar 
as dramatically. It's busier in a sense, but it's true that yeah, busyness doesn't really like equate to to investment all the time. I mean, I don't I don't think this is the most complex track, although I do love some elements about it. I love the the, the trumpet like just softly comping in the background during uh during the second verse. Uh, it may have done that the first verse as well, but I really noticed it during the second verse. And I also like something about her vocals here. I like how melodically free she's being. She she hops up into the upper register. In fact, it's something I, I didn't quite read from the lyrics because there's really no point in me reading I mean, you just have to hear them sung. And that's at the end of both verse 1 and verse 2. I, 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 I don't mind if it's right. And the way she drags that out, of course, each and every each and every iteration of that is just her meandering up and down, you know, breaching into the upper register, pulling back down again, just essentially doing a little mini solo within the, the duration of that particular phrase. It's really quite gorgeous. And then in, following that is this, this full eight-measure saxophone solo. I absolutely love that. Again, it's your more casual uh, saxophone solo, exactly where you'd expect it to fall, but it's, it's, there is something about the easygoing, I don't mind nature of this track. It feels as if she doesn't really mind, and she says it flat out. Save it. Save it. Ooh, I don't mind. Save it. Mm, I don't mind. <laughs> you know, all those little just like jazz onomatopoeias, but it, it's a conveyance of theme about as on the nose as one can make it. And you have the solos themselves, and this is a little bit of a stickler for me. Two sax and a trumpet solo, if I'm not mistaken. The other instruments don't really pull back. They don't promote solo. They promote exposition of an instrument, to let it just actually play around. And yeah, it's cool, and it's carefree, but it's not the same sort of like forefront sound that I would expect from a solo, that I had come to expect from, from a solo. And that made it so that I kind of got lost in them as well. I wasn't I wasn't as focused. Yeah. Um, but yeah, considering that focus uh, thing, it's like what Matt was saying. I do think I, it probably does come back to the percussion in the end, the fact that it, it, it can be made to feel very regular, very constrained. But going to what I said about like the first track, um, it also keeps it kind of hypnotic. It's a right frame of mind kind of song, I think. You need to be in this frame of mind in order to enjoy it and perhaps feel in a similar fashion. Then then it won't really sound uh, repetitive. I also think that it's upbeat nature is what will draw you into. Of all the things, the fact that it takes up a little bit of a pep from the previous tracks will kind of draw you in if you were looking for that. This would have been jazz when it was considered the pop of the time, and it would have been perfect for it. Yeah, and it serves as kind of an intermission on, on the album as a whole, because by the time we get to track six, when it counts, we're back to something that is a little bit more cagey again, uh, this time driven by the piano in the beginning with more complex chords, despite the fact that they're slow again and they're tied to the rhythm. But the saxophones here are dominating as leads um, in the intro as well, and frankly, they're breathier than other saxophones have bring, have, have been. It's the, the breathiness that is accentuated by the lingering of the brushes and the percussion as well, and it seems like we're being brought back to, to the noir atmosphere. So when you consider where the previous track, track five, Save It, fell in the midst of it all, it was like it just kind of like stepped into the daytime, and now we're back where the album wants to be, which is in the middle of the night making those uh, poor choices. Um, and this song, of course, the bass takes the lead again, which is I'm learning at this juncture is kind of where I like to be on this album. I like when that walking bass kind of takes the lead. Well, um, I also, I, I'm always for walking bass. Obviously. <laughs> um, but also what I like about this track is both musically and vocally, it's got more of a lamenting kind of a feel. We're getting back to that noir sound, as Steve said. But this is the first time that I kind of get a linger or a lamenting 
Whereas before it was kind of love, passion, or even like forlorn. This is something a little bit different, and you get that in the instrumentation. Well, there's a punctuation in the pacing that only jazz does. It's it's right there. Just the little piano work, just ever so slightly touching in and out of, of the song itself. From where it transforms mid-intro with the piano just stepping in and, and playing off the beat, where the percussion and the bass are are just so playful in the background, just touching here and there. It's something that I really only iconically hear in jazz, something I don't really experience in other music. There are instruments that have a tendency to transform. I mean, it's true perhaps for, for you know many songs and many genres that instruments will probably take different roles as they go through the track, but I do, I do love that trade-off, like, spotlight comping thing that is done here by the piano, the facts that the fact that it felt to be driving the track in the uh, in the early intro portion, and then here by the verse, it kind of thins down a bit, but it still seems a little more prominent because of the lack of saxophones here. All you have is just like the light brushes. You have the brushes, the piano, I, I think the bass, and then and then the vocals. But the piano is what really stands out because you don't have the saxophones in this particular moment. You had that in the intro, so hence this piano, despite being a little more simplistic seems like a more dominant element here. And I do love that subtle trade-off. That is true. That's something that jazz only really seems to to command with the same prowess. These these people, they spend a lot of time just approaching every 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 uh, standard, every song, every track with with just so much control. You know, it's all about control in its midst and 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 uh, volume <laughs> dynamics. That's that's the key. In many ways, that's why it is is seen as like the the natural follow up to classical because it demands the same the same prowess. And having the piano being the main almost focus of this musical aspect of it of the actual instrumentation, when it starts doing a little bit of dropout, letting the the vocals push forward, and it does take a little bit of backseat. It does hide itself from time to time. When you take that, take the beautiful singing that we just keep getting and I keep loving, and couple it with some of my more enjoyable lyrics on the album with uh, the chorus I see right through the pain that comes to find us but it didn't stop me from winding up as if I don't care but I do when it counts and that finality to it when it counts is it has that kind of melancholy feel to it just just as if I don't care, but I do. It's almost explaining yourself. It's defending yourself. Well, this takes me back to something that I also said in the intro about uh, about jazz being a kind of like, you know, post, in, in, a, in a loose sense, and you have to make a leap of faith for this and really find its roots like in history. But the idea that like jazz had its roots in a kind of like post-modernist, post-industrial environment, really like coming to terms with a lot of things. And there was an inherent melancholy that was associated with that. You especially get this like in the verses, which are shockingly more tearful and, and actually more memorable, I thought, than the, the courses, which were, the, and the choruses, which were kind of meandering. And the words here go, Time keeps to the grave, moving past all that we'll say. And the second verse, time will pass us by, and I don't care what's wrong or what is right. I mean, you see this postmodernist depression just kind of like creeping through here. I mean, it's th through the same lens. It's obviously probably through the, the, the lens of, of love, you know, when, when it counts and what you're going to do. When at the end of the day, you probably should maybe just give in because we're not, you know, we don't live that long. And that's kind of what I get here. 
it's just, it's from that same melancholy. The only reason you'd have to really react this way is if you feel kind of short on time and you're kind of considering the, the, the entirety of your life as opposed to just the single night, which is why you have to, in turn, think so, you know, small and momentary to avoid the, the lingering questions. And that's why you get this uh, very depressing atmosphere here. And, and the vocals bring this out, uh, you know, more than anything. Yeah, I think it's that the lamenting that I mentioned earlier on, it stems from this idea of kind of you're, th you're, you're starting to think about all those things you don't want to think about. So you're throwing yourself into this other thing to kind of not lament about it anymore. So it's kind of that give and take. Exactly. And that's why I find Sailor to be a, an interesting follow-up as far as the theme is going. And we're getting a little bit of a theme, a little bit of a story actually built up because the Sailor, the next track, is probably the most telling for this theme. It is the part where she starts preaching to that one that got away. It's more, the <laughs> track as a whole is more celebratory, more crooning, more enthralling. It's, this is that cliche of the one guy walks into that bar and of all those people, she's singing to him. Like it's really, it really conveys this, the singer, the character is singing to you. You're that sailor, sailor. you're that guy. It actually makes me think there's really three albums going on here. There's the Strange album that seems to kind of like step away from jazz entirely. Um, and then there's uh, the more standard like 1950s jazz. And then there's this like 40s element. The thing that I found in, in I Love Loving You and the thing that I found kind of sort of in, in Save It, at least in moments. Um, and what I find here in Sailor. It's this very upbeat, like two-step Got the kind of kind of a swing thing going on, very 40s again, and uh, frankly, it's sort of corny, but it feels like it could actually be in the same lineup as like the Jitterbug. <laughs> but it's it's it has to do with these these verses, you know. That's where you get the the the, the solid rhythm here. Um, Sailor, come home from the sea. Let the tides wash what used to be. Love can't hide crashing into me, but now I've changed. I have changed, and that's actually your chorus, almost seam seamlessly transitioning right into that. But what really drives this is that, that thump that you get on the fourth beat, like kind of a woodblock, which was a nice little touch here. But then once you seamlessly transition from that, that very uh, up-tempo, very extremely danceable verse, seamlessly into this chorus, yeah, I have changed, I have changed, the vocals start taking these full, like, upper partial harmonies, um, kind of like these these block chords up there between several vocalists. It sounds like it's almost more than two, and they change. They say that together. They recite that together. But now I've changed. I have changed, and it sounds so beautiful with the similar register vocal block chords, or at least that how it sounds. That's how it sounds to my ear. Absolutely gorgeous. If the sexiest moment of the album had already come and passed, this is the, probably my most beautiful moment of the album. Just that chorus work. And the way it kind of reinvents itself. Yeah, I have changed. I have changed later on. Changed, I have changed. And it is what it is. I have changed. That ending, it is what it is. I have changed. And it's for that chorus that it actually takes away a bit of that, you know, corny element that I might have initially ascribed to it. Um, you know, not that I wasn't enjoying it. I was definitely enjoying it. But still, it's like, all right, this is clearly just like a reach back to the 40s. It's not It's not the same way that I had said, you know, well, jazz has existed in a, sort, in a sort of constancy from the 50s on. When you reach back to the 40s, it's a little bit more noticeable. It can be very, it can be period work. But uh, then by the time we get there, it's like the song grew its own character and was able to kind of pull back out of that and apply 
a story that you're willing to believe is taking place at the time, and yet also today. Very strange. But the, the structure and this setting is even stronger with something that could be considered a little cliche, although I didn't mind it. About halfway through the song, during the more upbeat parts, we're getting party sounds now. You know, people having a good time, laughter. And they become yeah, a lot in, more prevalent towards the end yeah, of the song. That was in the third verse. And so w- when that happens, then you're getting this setting that's even stronger. I mean, when you add background noise to a song, it's impossible to not have a setting because you're creating it with that kind of atmosphere. And it, it, it could be considered a little cheesy, but ultimately it really just kind of helps increase the celebratory nature of the track. Well, there's also the timing there. That occurs in, I mean, it occurs in the third verse while a couple of other things also start to like step away from the rigidity here. Not that there's been too much rigidity, but you know, during a danceable section, you'd figure like, all right, it has a few phrases and, and it should be kind of tight. But by the third verse, it seems to kind of elongate itself. You can even see this in the, in the lyrics. You've gone and lived. Like me, when you spread your wings, well, let go of the years and tears, babe. I love to love. It's in all of us, and each love deserves a song. Even though, even though, I have changed, I have changed, and I have changed, and and it is what it is, I have changed. You know, he, she elongates that transition there, and over that, you, you hear the... the um, nightclub laughing and the sounds in the background. You also hear more experimentation with the secondary vocalist. The backup vocalist steps in to, to really accentuate that um, those words, specific words like the tears, babe, you know, or love deserves a song. I love these. It, it's almost like just maxims are coming in from out of nowhere to, to, to uh, define it. Very strange. If she's pleading her case to try to get back with someone, she's doing a hell of a job because this is this is the sort of woman I would say, okay, we'll try it again. And I have no problem with that whatsoever. It's just <laughs> so beautifully done. And all coming together. And like Matt said, it comes in halfway. But this is the third verse, less talking part. And we have a nice elongated outro. The solo, the final solo was really beautiful too to, fi- to, to go along with that outro, which was this sort of muffled trumpet solo. And I, that it means using a muffler at the end of the trumpet. It's, but it's, it sounds additionally muffled, not just for... Uh, for that effect um, and for that tool, but also the way it's mixed. It almost sounds, it sounded to me, and perhaps I'm partially ascribing this because of the whole Sailor uh, uh, title, but it sounds like it was like up against a steel wall. Like you had nothing but a hull in the background. Like the kind of, you know, uh, port side parties that would usually go when, when sailors that, were in port. The idea yeah. that the singer's performing for a group of sailors. Exactly, and that, and that uh, there's just a bunch of USO girls hanging around, you know, this is this it's what I picture. But that was the audio effect and it was it was very it was very ev- evocative of the time. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. It's strong setting moment on this album, uh, let alone the track, but the album, because you are put in a place and everything puts you there. There's no arguing that setting. There's no interpretation. You're there. That's where this song is. Yeah, not, it's just because, of course, you know, well, it's not to say that you can't sing to a sailor today, but I guarantee you this is probably not the caliber of the music being played. <laughs> Likely not. Um, from here we go to track eight, in many ways. And so this song, we go back to the kind of smoky noir sound that we've been getting before. But this is the first time on a broad scale that I feel like we're not really getting a different thing. There were there were minor and major differences from track to track. So when we hit a noir moment, there were other things that kind of pulled us through or gave us something intriguing. Whereas here I found myself going, okay, what makes this different from previous tracks? What makes this stand out? And I didn't really have an answer for that. 
Um, maybe like well, the the walking base was one thing, but of course we had that. It's it's very very clear. Um, I liked the rhythm though within that. It wasn't entirely walking. Excuse me. It was it was more dragged out. It went by measure instead of by beat. Uh, it went to like you have the. You have a fall in the one, then suddenly like the four and, and then the next one, and then the four and again. It's or then sometimes not even the four, just the and one. So you hear these long uh, draws, which makes it really the farthest thing from a walking base. It's really a strolling base. I kind of liked that, and there's something definitely more relaxed to this track. But apart from that, I am inclined to agree there wasn't the same. Uh, it didn't have to reach the same heights. Well, there was the guitar was playing along with the bass instead of doing its own thing. I noticed that as well. That was a little bit different, and they started blending elements again instead of having them stand out a little bit more. You're getting a lot of the same theme work. Another build towards the chorus of, of introducing complexity and more elements to it, which is something that we get a lot of, but here, you're right, there's no, like, specific note that's standing out there's no specific you know chord progression that's standing out it's not much in the way of difference well it's also not so much in the way of i mean in terms of lyrical value here i think there's there is a sense that this is sitting between two decisions sort of uh just take verse one i think that in many ways it's fair to say that we're all plagued by some split personality but some choose to act upon it with a little help from a drink or ten, or maybe it's just because of you. And in the chorus, babe, we all want to love someone, but forget ourselves and our needs. Our feelings are so abused by ourselves. Babe, we all need love. Oh, don't forget. Don't forget about you. It echoes the same themes, but it seems to come to a more mature head at this juncture, which actually, ironically enough, I think is why we're stripped from some of the character than earlier. I think, well, the way you describe those lyrics, too, it kind of hints at adultery, almost. Like, this idea of, you know, <laughs> doing that thing that maybe you shouldn't do. Oh, I'm sure if, if I mean, if earlier in the album we got a sense that things were wrong, I, I yeah, I think we're all kind of thinking it wasn't exactly... And uh, so, like, that, I think, too, is, like, that's why it kind of has this vague noir feel, because you, you're creating a gray area You're not in this it's song. It's seedy. It's supposed to be seedy and a little gray, whereas in other places the environment felt a little seedy, but she seemed, seemed pretty pure. Here, this definitely seems like, ah, uh, you know, it's not... It's not a an over-sexualization and a need for just wanting pure passion with no attachment. But the music comes across as being like background music to the decision itself. Yeah, and it, it really feels that way. That's why I think it has more of an adulterous nature because it's like, you know, you're, you're not just making a decision because you want something. You're making a decision because you want something and there could be consequences. Exactly. And, and I think that's why it has this kind of murky gray tone to it because essentially those things are considered a gray area yeah. where there's no right or wrong although sometimes there is it's supposed to convey that and even the things within that 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 did stand out like the saxophones kind of creeping forward they're not particularly new on this album so yeah you get what you get and it's you just have to enjoy it if, if you enjoy the vibe of the whole yeah i think from here we can safely go to track nine past yet untold now past yet untold is track nine and track ten you're everything these two songs are more concise than previous tracks, both around three minutes. And there's something interesting about them both being a little on the shorter side for this album anyway. Um, so Past Yet Untold, from the minute it starts, has this beautifully sweet, slow sway kind of feel. It's a ballroom song. Yeah. A true it, ballroom song. It seems like the kind of track that might have played in the same exact lineup as like what we got earlier with Sailor, but it would have been the slow dance. Yeah, this like, is the slow dance and, and things are starting to get 
gets sweeter, an emphasis in the word sweet. It's true, and you mentioned this earlier, that we had kind of this yeah, seedy, sultry nature throughout the majority of the album, uh, that you're living in that 3 a.m. world, but this, this, all of a sudden, I don't feel like there's a seduction. I feel like it's really more just a, a sweet conveyance of emotion. And But, but that sweet conveyance of emotion is not purely sweet. It kind of is a sweetly forlorn feeling, you know, and that's yeah. found more in the lyrics. The lyrics are, frankly, like... Yeah, pure depression. How we smile and all laugh at the ironic things. What if each day had nothing new to bring? Would we still care? I believe that if it was all true, and there are probably only be a few, would we still care? So, like... It's not... I mean, the theme work itself. No more tales would we share. There would be no new surprise feelings, nothing nothing new. Like, that's what it's saying, nothing new. Like, we've discovered the world. They're, she's talking about the most boring of well, boring. It's coming out, yeah, it's coming out of minutiae. It's coming out of the same kind of melancholy, you know, drama that had persisted throughout the album. But yet the music is, has, has shifted completely around. It's a more lighthearted personal moment with another person in some sense. You know, I picture this conversation as strange as that would be, taking place over the course of the actual ballroom dance. And also, it's got that beautifully tragic feel like we got in Coldest Kind of Heart. Here, though, it's it's definitely more sweetly forlorn. It's there's Because that did have a hint of the sultriness, whereas here, it seems just beautifully dark, you know, kind of like a pretty goth and kind of a thing, you know. The, there the, is a joking part But I think, that, I well. think there's, a, really? there's a flat out split here. I don't think it's just the kind of like, you're not beautifully goth. I don't think if you, if there were no lyrics or if you, or if they were gibberish or another language, I don't think you'd have any hint whatsoever. Oh no, I would agree that this was that, about yeah. what it's about. I especially, agree. Especially the chorus. Yeah. She shows she's being coy with the lines, yes I know, yes I know. Oh, what a silly thing to believe. Yes, I know. Yes, I know. Oh, darling, it's all just a tease. And it sort of, like, picks up and culminates there as well. It's it's her being coy, but there's a little bit of just not rightness about it. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe the coy, the, that coy behavior is really dictating the, the happy-go-lucky, or at least, you know, soft, easygoing uh, manner of this song. Even the trumpet solo, when that steps in, I, I know this is kind of reaching back, but eh, not necessarily, especially since other tracks had existed kind of in the 40s. The trumpet solo was very, like, Louis Armstrong to me, mm-hmm. specifically Louis Armstrong, because I can, I, there was a happy-go-lucky nature about it. It was cheerful. I can picture that big Satchmo smile to go along with it. You can hear him smiling in his singing and in his trumpet, and that's what I heard here. It was a, a, a desire to to bring that back to life. So uh, it's a it's a very very stark split uh, between theme and and musical approach here, and I do believe it's it's for the um, again feeling in the midst of it all that that between the two decisions between you know red and blue, black and white, what have you. I think that's also kind of common for the time. You know, you would put a smile on a pretty person on a stage, yeah. even if they're tragically in a terrible situation. They would still sing with a smile because they don't want anyone to know anything's wrong. That and was, I think it kind of gives that kind of conveyance. That was a common expectation. That was just a cultural expectation, actually, for even decades leading up to them, too. Yeah. Um, from here we go to the other track that I had mentioned earlier, You're Everything, or You Are Everything, as the contraction would lead you to believe. Um, This is probably my favorite song on the record, and there are a lot of high moments that we've talked about before this, but it has one of the most beautifully narrative instrumental intros on the entire record. 
it's slow, very slow piano. And that's the first thing I noticed. But when the vocals step in and the piano doesn't change, it, it becomes a soliloquy in many ways. It's very much the same figuration. It, it's, it's this uh, opening this, the, the song with this like major seventh interval, the widest you can get without like resolving to an octave, obviously. And then it slowly shifts those sevenths around. It creates this very, it's, there's, there's a dissonance in there and an awkwardness. And then the saxophone is the second instrument to step in, which uh, together, kind of almost sound like a loft apartment practice session. Mm -hmm. There's something very non-studio about this. Or like you're not even hearing it in the midst of the apartment, you're hearing it from the distance. Like you're a floor below or floor above or a building across, who knows. You just, it's, it's, it's very close and personal, the kind of, you know, street side scenes you get or, or urban scenes you get. And then the vocals. Let's talk about the mixing there. Because it, it continues partially with the same exact feel, but maybe not feeling so distant. Instead, the vocals, more than any other track on the album, these vocals sound so close, like she's really singing in your ear. I may have said that earlier, but it doesn't do it justice to what she's doing here. It sounds like she's next to you on the piano seat. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a piano player, but because no matter who you are or what you play, this song makes you feel like you are the piano player. That's what began the track. And it's very simple. It's something that actually probably anybody could learn if they just applied themselves for a couple of hours. It's very, very, a, a very simple figuration, very easygoing, and it persists for the duration. But then you have that vocalist just, you know, hammering it home. Extremely romantic. I don't take enough time for myself every time to let go and breathe. But when I do, the few times that I do, your face comes to mind and I'm free. Easy come, easy go. Baby, you'll make my world feel slow. Each thought that I have, each one I can find, tiptoes around when I close my eyes. Beautiful imagery going on here. Frankly, this is, this is how I want a person to, to speak to me one day in my life. Like this... This is the most intimate song on the album thus far, and frankly, one of the most intimate songs we've probably ever reviewed, in my opinion. Well, it goes back to the, to the title itself, You're Everything. And that's an interesting placement of this concept, considering all of this, like, well, let's just give in to the night, you know? Let's just give in to, uh, let's give in to carnal desire, or decisions, decisions, blah, blah, blah. It's all this, like, you know, caught in... in in feelings that, that don't feel pivotal, things that, that feel like, you know, it's just kind of like getting by. They don't feel like love. For the first time, this feels like love. You're everything. You know, there shouldn't be more of a decision after that. Yeah, this is the kind of emotionality that really puts the focus on that person. Like, if you're the person on the piano seat and she's singing to you, you are the focus. There is no other. And it's it's a personal and a personal connection and intimacy that we have not really gotten on the record before this. We're hinted at it, but here you really feel like you're the one and she's singing to you. And as a hopeless romantic, it just, it really, I got caught up in it. It really just did satisfy that. And again, once more, the jazz game of her really, really fooling you. <laughs> yeah. That she's talking to you. But once she's singing and all said and done, when you put the elements together, it becomes less of the same sort of songs that we've had on the album itself because it's of, of how stripped down it is. It's, like I said, a soliloquy. It's, it's poetry set to a beat. 
I even love that my heart swells as the evening dwells. Your smile appears and away go my tears. There's not a lot of rhyming actually on this album, but when it comes, it's astute, you know, and that's, it's, it's gotta, gotta love that astute wordplay. Um, but and this, this was song, the time for it, if anything. This song had to be this short. It couldn't have gone yeah. on longer. The fact Any that, longer would have ruined it. The fact that it was so concise really just hammered home the emotionality of it. I really... It's pretty thick, though. You gotta, you gotta take into account even the final stanza. You're everything. You're everything. You're everything that I want to love. You make me complete. But at this That's... point, I have already fallen in love with... <laughs> With this persona, I'm already deeply entrenched just, with this person. Head cliche to my ears, but I do, I do, I feel what you feel. It's just, I don't know. I don't care about the cliche at this point. Yeah, I, someone, that, it was, it was. They, she waited till track ten to pull this, and I think it was, I think it was well done. And this, I mean, honestly and bluntly, as someone who's who's in love and hears a song like this, like I can fall right into it. I can see. I can see a singer being this deeply in love because I get it. I see it. And I think that the fact that it's so frank about it kind of really hammers it home. And it's also face it. I mean, who doesn't go back to the cliches, at least sometimes, yeah. you know? that eh, If they work before, they're probably going to work again. And now for something completely different. Not completely. Well, but definitely well, different. No one knows. This is actually how I first chose this album. I, I saw someone... I, this was the first thing I previewed for... Twin Danger and it's a curious thing because no one knows this is a song I already knew very intimately and yet didn't recognize until well until things started kicking it up for me I recognized it almost immediately because I'm very familiar with the cover so it's no one knows is a cover of a Queens of the Stone Age song it's off their I believe third album and it's it's one of those songs that really uh, threw their career into overdrive it was one of their first big hits on MTV um this song, the way they've done it, is takes us back to to a band I mentioned earlier, Postmodern Jukebox, and they do a similar thing that they do, where they kind of just jazzify a pop song, and this is their jazzifying this alt rock song, and they make it their own, but they're more or less still using the original arrangements, which is what I find so beautiful. They cut it the speed down. It's probably not half speed, maybe maybe three-fourths the speed of the original. It's definitely slowed down from the original version. Well, there's a lot changed from the original version. I mean, yeah, of course, it keeps the same basic chord patterns, but there's they make this sound suddenly so sleazy that I don't think it really had that going for it in the original version. I mean, this is a different kind of noir to me. This makes me feel like it's a real like 1940s noir film where, where you're down by the dock hanging out with a bunch of mobsters. <laughs> this is the way this made me feel. I mean, yes, it brings back some, some go-tos. It brings back the walking bass. But I think, of course, the big draw here is is in the melody. The fact that a lot of people do know the Queens of the Stone Age melody, then that's the one of the biggest draws. You're going to be anchored back to it. You're going to kind of recognize that through this, which is the nature of what you do with any cover, and so that's why it's it's enjoyable. Otherwise, I don't think it would be one of the more standoutish uh, tracks on this album, but it's still really, really fun just to hear that contrast. Well, and also, the original the original Queens of the Stone Age song had that sleazy nature in the lyrics, but the jaunty kind of sound of the original song kind of masked that a bit, where here, slowing it down you get that kind of more sleazy, haunting feel of those like late night foggy docks because those lyrics are the same, but now you're putting it in a frame where they kind of fit more more towards that kind of a theme. Yeah. And and all said and done, I mean it's I would go even a step further to really describe this. It's almost like she's the pusher. When you start taking the actual choice of lyrics 
I mean, this is a song that they, they knew. It was there. She must know the words before. But having we got these pills to swallow, how they stick in your throat, the way she presents it, it's it's like she's the, the dealer at this point. And what she's dealing is almost sensuality. At um, this, it kind of fits with the theme work. I, but it's well, not no, see, at that point, I, w- I would say, you know, I wouldn't cite redundancy in the album. I would cite redundancy to us because of the fact that we know she is a sensual singer. So we're going to hear it in probably anything she tries to do um, and it applies to this. I mean, yeah, sure. We know that there's there's a return of similar themes. I realize your mind. Indeed, I indeed a fool I am. I realize your mind. Indeed, a fool I am. Am I? Heaven smiles above me. What a gift here belong. But no one knows the gift that you give to me. Yeah, no one knows. So of course it it brings back that element, but the the music is not essential. The music no. to me is is actually a, a tad threatening in a sense. Well, um, that fits in line with the original song, which was a uh, significantly more aggressive, and the arrangement is very much in line with the original song. What I like is though around a minute thirty though it kicks up. We get the horns now, and like it picks up a bit. And it still stays slower, but it picks up a bit from how it started. And that I believe is where the disparity is coming in, where the threat is sort of coming in, because they are harkening back to the original, while trying to keep it with same, the same framework that they had for their album themselves for their sound. That combination, I think, is where we're getting conflict. Well, I like the stylishness that this kind of kick-up goes to, and I enjoy the track as a whole. I mean, I also am a big fan of covers, especially when you kind of take something and make it your own and own it, and they definitely did here. It's why I like Postmodern Jukebox, too, because they do that with those songs. They take it, they take pop songs that are very well-known, and then they make it their own and change it up, sometimes putting it, turning it on its ear. And this was quite a bit turned on its ear. Also, if that um, if that little side is any hint, you know, I realize your mind. Indeed, I am a fool. Uh, I think the placement of this to follow the 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 very on the nose and and open uh, romantic track you make me complete. You know, to close with that and then go into this. Oh, that that seems like that that seems like heartbreak one hundred and one. It seems you know, like that, conflict. That, yeah, that this suddenly realizing she's a fool, despite the fact that she just revealed it all. So you know, just you know poking around into the possible story here, but certainly this had a more upbeat uh, nature to it, I think because of the fact that it felt a little bit threatening. I think there's 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 more going on here. It wasn't as laid back because there's uh, there's anxiety, there's, there's trouble afoot. Let's go into track 12. Take it from my eyes. So this is the first track on the entire record to start with vocals. We had not had a track that started with vocals yet. A little bit of a difference. Also, in this case, the piano seems to be the companion as yeah. opposed to the bass while the bass is actually more following the beat it's a it's a little bit of a turn on the head but it's this late in the game it is nice to see those roles being reversed and to have it sort of as like a, a fresh rendition of something we're already very familiar with the the very brushed uh drum work that's very muted very background is also back it's it's sort of like a throwback to the beginning of the album. Yeah, and despite the the bass being sort of out there, it has a it has a downtrodden nature to it. it it's very present, but it it it's it's um signifying, I think, for for being more downtrodden, like it's taken on a character, a personality. Um, and then the chords here were I thought pretty powerful. I also like the way she holds like just one note for like a really really long time. This is this there's more patience with this. And then sometimes the saxophones echo that, and they do the exact same thing, just holding it out sometimes for the duration of a measure. I love that I love that effect here. 
Um, also, it was one of the only instances where we got a full piano solo. With piano is not just a comping instrument, we have it's 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 a character too. I felt that this song swooned more than previous tracks. It wasn't as sultry as other tracks. It kind of just had that smooth kind of swooning nature, kind of to wrap you up in it. And even moments that swooning kind of led to something very heartfelt. Even though the whole track might not have felt heartfelt, there were definitely very heartfelt moments. Well, speaking to both of what you said, the elongated notes. And the, the, the swaying nature, the swooning nature, verse 2 personifies this. I can't give to you unless you give to me. Right there, the give and take, the back and forth that's going on. Mm-hmm. I can't give to you unless you give to me. I saved myself for you. I knew from the start we were not to be apart for that long. I'm shame, that note, that word, the piano stepping in and taking that word shame and just making it not it, it became a, th- a thing unto itself. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like it really does kind of add a punctuation mark in this song. You know, the whole song itself, there are some things that we've heard before structurally, but overall, those highlighted moments add an impact emotionally. And the percussion changes over time. It's, it, it steps away from, from brush to actually start tapping, to start experimenting in itself and that kind of evolution is a little bit interesting it's weird to have that instrument which has such distinct sound depending on how you strike it to change over the course of the song also to complete your phrase shame tears you apart and right there that's the that's the thing uh i mean there's so many there's so much about these lyrics that i think is i think Despite the fact that we get love as a theme and love and loss and heartbreak and all that all the time, you know, from album to album to album, I think to take such a classic route with it can be very powerful. And also to stretch it across decades, you know, and, and apply the same. It, it makes you feel as if you are watching a story, I mean, or watching a movie. I, I remember uh, John actually said something even before while we were just listening to this earlier on that you, there's almost a voyeuristic quality to this that we're, we're just witnessing this album we're just watching it take place and well maybe we're not there sometimes she can fool you and make you think you're there but then you realize you were just kind of caught up in the film of it all I think that comes from this natural setting that this kind of music also clichely fits to this idea of a smoky club and watching a singer sing it that voyeuristic nature is inherent in this kind of specific setting for jazz. It's part that, and it's part the lyrics and the very visceral nature bring to mind a classic take on a very, very common subject. Yes, I agree. I think that um, this is a great part place, rather, to go to our final track of the record. Track 13, Missing Her. Um, this was an interesting thing. It goes back to us to earlier on, which Steve will go into more detail about because he alluded to this. But we get this guitar intro that it's more reminiscent of classic rock or even prog than it is jazz. Really, it's a, this it's a little me, bit drony, a little bit, ever so slightly. It's it's a little bit too steady. It this to me fit on that third album, that third album within this album oh, here. Right. You know where uh, maybe it's second album again. It's, it depends on how much of a split you really want to take between like forties and fifties jazz. But uh, still, there's jazz, and then there's just not jazz, or at least <laughs> it doesn't seem so jazz influenced. Or there's it's back there, but frankly, it's been more pursued by other things in recent years. It's been more pursued by prog, and I really heard that here more than anything. Prog alt rock, they pursue these these uh, dissonant intros that 
aren't, don't necessarily have the character of Jazz, but they may borrow from some of the similar progressions. Still, even here, I don't think this is something people would pull before before a certain decade. Just the intro was, I'll even cite the notes, C-sharp, D, up just a half step, and then cycling up to B, and then sort of going around in that little trio there, and then all of a sudden the B goes down to an A. It's a very, very odd interval between just a little half step and then hot hacking up the fifth, so you get the you get the fifth and you also get the flat sixth just crammed in there. And then all of a sudden this same exact pattern is just moved up a minor third to E. So it, it, that's a very strange motif just for a figuration, and it comes across as sounding very, very eerie and uncertain and all things that we may have mentioned earlier, but in such a specific fashion that we know it's coming out of a more noir feeling. This is different. This is, I mean, the track is called Missing Her, and I find that strange considering we've had a female narrative. That's uh, a, a point to maybe hint at why we have a different uh, a theme here, a different album. Well, well my, my theory is, and it gets really kind of solidified once the singing comes in because in this we don't have a singular voice through most of this track it's this kind of angelic chorus of multiple singers whether it's her doubled or tripled or other actual backup singers but that effect plus the instrumentation for me anyway gave it this kind of deep woods mystical sound and even if you don't get that setting specifically this idea of missing her maybe she's run off somewhere and the narrator is kind of stepping out of herself and kind of talking about this person who's gone missing or this idea of being misplaced. The problem is it's adding splashes of color that I really hadn't seen for the rest of the album. Or maybe that's not the problem. Maybe it's it's a, it's a more fitting closer because of that. We're getting a third person as opposed to a first person. We're getting some experimentation with instruments that we really haven't heard already. Up until this point, in my mind's eye, everything was in black, white, and red. That's <laughs> it. That's all that was going but on. But that's fair. The I classic mean... noir. Right. Well, the fair Here, idea. There's but... blues. There's greens. There's some. There's a lot more, I guess, in many ways, a lot more flesh on the bones, uh, well, you extra can, you, meat You can't on, even, but... frankly, you can't even begin to just, like, guess th your way through this track. Yeah. I mean, there's a story here, and it, it's it's it's... In, in stark contrast to the rest of the album in some way, just in terms of, of, of who the hell is speaking. Don't you break, don't you break. In the, if the time is right, mind the liking, find the light. Find your mind. Find the time when the light is right. She comes and the minds align. She, she comes. Still got a female vocalist, though. Yeah. She, talking First. about she. First she. she. She's stepping out of herself? Is she talking about another she? I feel like she's stepping out of herself. I feel like this is the female narrator narrating that character who's been prominent in the album from get, an outside. Which is why we get a, such a, a strange musical reflection as if it's like just coming from the mirror itself. Right. That's, I think, also the, vo the way the vocals are kind of formed here kind of give that as well, this kind of angelic chorus singing from above. And then but, 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 if this individual is speaking in third person about herself, who is she now? No, and no. That's my big question. I don't think she's speaking in third person about herself. I think the singer has stepped out of the character. I think the character is still on the page and, or in existence, but the singer is now the narrator, not the character. Excuse me, who, there's a back and forth between that? the verses and the chorus, and I didn't notice that. The verses, for instance, lonely skies, lonely days, with you everything feels so safe. So now we have a you, we have something a little bit more direct. Mm -hmm. um, and the road, it gets so high, don't you want the best? Then try for someone, save me, darling. 
now it's back to me. And then the chorus is, it's talking about a she and the verses were back to a me. A lot of conflict here, and frankly, there's more conflict even within the, the, the music itself, because yeah. this is another one of those cases. We have that back and forth between the uneasy chords and the more slightly satisfied chords. Now, it's not necessarily like chorus to verse. In fact, I found that it was phrase to phrase. But uh, it's, uh, I don't know. There's something I really, really love about this, but also makes me so curious about the story and even more curious about, like, the musical direction. There are times in which I really kind of wanted to linger on the uneasiness. I feel like there there could be more more clarity here, but perhaps she's purposely trying to avoid clarity. I mean, it could be. I mean, honest, ultimately, it, it feels like there's some kind of break. Maybe it's a manic break. Maybe it's actually psychological. Who knows? Like, it's really so hard to tell, but I wouldn't put it past this kind of idea that something happened after that 12th track that this narrator this character is so fractured and it could easily be a mental break it feels like actually the the music is doing the same uh kind of interrupting itself except this time from chord to chord the chords interrupt each other because they sound like like such awkward transitions but they still they still work really really well but it sounds like the same kind of thing that it was doing form wise back in track 4 just because how the the phrases were interrupting each other and you get this like second restart you know like the, that previous thought nope that just trailed off um same thing being done here Along that, of course, alongside that, of course, you have the vocals, which you know, they're they're smooth as they have been, but they have more force, I think, in specific ac- accents, and also like in the gaps of their overlap, you have more of a punch there. There's so much intricacy in these in these uh in these harmonizations. I just I don't know. Sometimes I wish that this was a little bit more prominent on the album, and I think it's about time we start talking about this on an album scale. So why don't you go ahead and tell us exactly how you feel? No, I veto. I veto. <laughs> you veto? I get to I do get, that, can I? I no, that's no, my, my choice. My John, choice. John, I get to. I get to say that. I know that's why it's a me and Matt decision, right? And right, we'll deciding you stare each other down. You guys really don't want to. Uh, I mean, I don't right. want to really start, but you I, guys really don't want to start. All right, failed veto. I'll go. There you go. Um, this is not a democracy. You've been overruled. Ouch! <laughs> I'll have to change the crash court constitution. Um, I think that as a jazz album it's it's i mean so silly to rate it because we never even say like when we're talking about a pop or rock are we rating this as a rock no we just rate things as an album we don't really go back and i think it would be unfair just because we don't have as much experience on this podcast and we've been saying we're going to expand more we just you know there as a there's a tendency to try to focus on on uh on fresher albums and, and known bands and just jazz it's true is not in the same exact spotlight spotlight like i said earlier on jazz kind of likes being a backseat creature um i i the only reason i can think for that is that perhaps they they get more maybe emotional depth from just sort of being that secondary thing that people listen to afterwards I don't think it gets everyone in the same exact way and i think it is in danger of being a lost art but these are general uh, these are general comments, I think, on the nature of the genre. On this album, it, there's no danger of anything being lost. It follows in the same traditions and in the same patterns as, as have existed since the 50s and the 40s. And there was a lot more 40s on this album than I had previously expected. There was also a lot more strange uh, New Age stuff on this album that I didn't really expect. It, it's... It's in a variety of places, but this is a case where I'm not going to call that a fault. I don't think that was where this album was hurt by any stretch. I think genre-wise, this really excelled at 
at being so spaced out with where it wants to be. It actually gives you quite the arc, um, and a fun arc, but also emotionally disturbing at times. I'm okay with that. Yeah. As a duo, uh, you can obviously tell that they're the prominent figures. There are, you can also tell that there's a, a lot of help and that this wouldn't be the same album without those backups that I cited uh, early on. All the, these supplemental figures who have had long-standing careers really aid to bring this album to fruition. But let's talk about theme here, because I feel like that's where what's probably going to, I guess, dictate this in the end. If you're just talking about the fact that they're a tight jazz band, then that makes this a pretty boring discussion. I mean, you know, you could hear even as we go through the album, we, we, we find certain little elements in which we're just like describing how tight they are. And it's like, that that's great. But what really propels it to the next level? I think it's some of the other things that we were finding a little more fascination with. Some of the moments in which the story and the theme starts getting... Uh, starts marrying itself with the vocals and, uh, excuse me, starts marrying itself with the music and the music is not merely there as the courtesy backdrop as we do by precedent for being prominent jazz musicians and this is our chosen medium. No, it is a it is a useful medium for specific concepts and while love is a go-to theme, there's just things you can do here that you cannot do with other genres. This is why jazz is still, even to this day, infinitely renewable. Um, and it's time to bring us new standards. I can see these tracks, um, and all of them originals except for one, becoming their own standards. I can. I think that is a real um, is a real advancement. I think that's something I do not frequently see, even despite that I'm not of the jazz ilk and I'm not seeing every album that is released. A lot of it is compilations, and a lot of them stick to their old standards because you could you pick up a jazz album. A lot of times, you're just gonna get covers. It's like people doing new things with old themes. This is largely new, and it has focus. I want to hear moments like those sensual, romantic moments, like we got in the in the uh, loft track that was your everything. I want to hear more of the. The, the strange prog influence that comes in the very final track, and the second track, and the fifth track, uh, or excuse me, not the fifth, the fourth track, just because. This is where I'm kind of at on this album. The rest of it still serves to fill out the theme, and I like the back-and-forth nature of feeling like you're in love in one moment, and then all of a and, and fully ready to, to embrace it, and then going into the more sleazy side of things and decisions that could have gone differently. I like that back and forth. I still think that this could have served to be a slight bit more experimental. The fact is, people make judgments. Um, people are going to come back at a certain point and just say, well, I've heard this before and I have older albums for this. Maybe not for exactly what this album does, but they're going to make those preconceptions before they get that far into it. Not everybody does what, you know, we do. We really just, like, sit with ourselves and we're trying to give it the benefit of the doubt as we go. I don't think everyone's going to do that. For that reason, maybe it, should have pulled, it shouldn't have pulled the punches where it did. I think it should have used some of those tactics uh, um, in, in similar fashion as we saw, like, in, in the Chick Corea album, our only other jazz-focused uh, album, Chick Corea's The Vigil. And, you know been on the more experimental side. I do think jazz has, jazz has, it's not a matter of thought, jazz has many very different directions, and I think this was just a little pigeonholed at times. It seemed they shrank back to familiarity where it was comfortable to do so, despite that that may have fit with the theme. Love the, uh, the whole atmosphere, though. I think this is definitely in four territory. I'm going to put it at a solid 4.4. 4. 
I'm just a hair shy of the upper upper echelon just because I'm not I'm not seeing those those really great reach out moments. Everything else is just tight as hell though. I want to see that next level. Um I don't know what to say to to avoid repeating everything Steve said since he was pretty succinct. I said a lot. <laughs> um for me, I mean, it's not a secret that I'm not an active jazz listener. I don't listen to a lot of it. I made those claims when we did the vigil. Um, it doesn't it's not for a lack of liking it though. I feel like there are some genres of music, and we could probably approach this at another time, that for whatever reason feel unapproachable, even if you're interested in it or enjoy it. And I feel that way about jazz. That I like it. I just don't feel it doesn't feel approachable to me. I can't put into words why. But anyway, so of course I have that with this album. But that said... I'll interject because it crosses over with something that I said, uh, that jazz to a lot of people who are not in the industry feel like a, feels like a time and place thing. Mm. That could very well be it. Um, I think, though, this does lean more towards a pop structure as far as the songs being around a solid four minutes for each track or less. Um, and I think it's also her voice that really carries me through. I mean, ultimately, I love the instrumentation on this record, but the lead singer's voice is really what enraptured me. But like Steve said, there were some tracks that I just felt like, what are we doing? We've heard this already. Like, it wasn't bad per se, but I just wasn't... Because I'm like, yeah, man, jazz, give me more. Like, I just didn't want those repeated tracks. I Subtle wanted... figuration changes, and it's like, what are you really getting at? What is the, where, where, get to the meat. That said, emotionally, this album is fantastic. I mean, anything that dives deep into love, everyone knows I'm a sucker for. If you look back in our large catalog of rating, if we are dealing with an album that emotionally has a lot to do with love or heartbreak or both, I tend to get pulled in, and I absolutely did here. And Your Everything is definitely, it might not be the most emotional track of the year, but it's definitely one of my most romantic tracks of the year. And there's a difference. And for me, that song kind of really made me fall in love with this singer and that perspective and, and everything. And I really like the cover of No One Knows. I like when a band owns a cover and they kind of just make it one of their own. Um, I agree with Steve, though, those standout moments where it stepped a little bit outside of jazz and experimented a bit. I wanted more of as well. I think that's why, ultimately, even though I, did, I had said that I didn't really in, super enjoy the vigil, I rated it so highly because the virtuosity was undeniable and there was enough interesting things that were done that pulled me above. Whereas here, I enjoyed it and I would go back to it, but it would become another... I put it on in the background or I enjoy it casually. I don't think I will. I just, I'm not ready to be an active, intense jazz listener yet. I'm not there. I, I feel like I'm still missing something. That said, Steve is absolutely right. This duo is a talent. They've got talented friends around them that help bring this out. And honestly, I would love to hear this album live if it's just the two of them. Because I'm curious how the arrangements change or how the figuration changes to support just the two of them. I think that would be fascinating. I'll tell you exactly what you'd get. Longer solos. Yeah, well, that's probably true. <laughs> a lot longer. Um, but it's somewhere in the same territory, Steve. I feel like I might have been a little more bored with the repetitive stuff than you two were. So for me, it's just slightly lower. It comes in at a 4.25. It, it's, it's approaching that upper echelon, and there's no denying the talent of this duo, but I just... I got enraptured in the moments, but the album as a whole, I felt I was still kind of a little bit left wanting. That said, it's still a fantastic album. I'm going to say right now, I'm in love with Vanessa Blay. I think she's taken. I, I, I will pine for years. 
the the voice is what drew me in. The arrangements is what kept it going, and just the fact that it it was thematically building a, a, a great story that was just so subtly hinted at in in so many little instances. The choice of a lot of the arrangements of of just not just the actual instruments, but the words and the pronunciation and the pitch changes. Very interesting. Really, it was, like we said a couple of times, almost like an exact opposite of Florence and the Machine from last week when it comes to the vocals. Both have beautiful ranges. Florence's accent was on a lot of the harshness, a lot of the pausing and, and those breath steps. Here, it was so hidden that everything, like I said earlier, purred. It's it's an it's the opposite effect. This one just pulls me in so deeply to her vocals that it's kind of jarring when I feel like I'm getting bored with the music, and that's my big critique. At times, when I'm saying, oh, "Yeah, I kind of heard it before," I had to I had to go, "Well, what was this solo doing? What is this instrument doing?" But towards the end of the album, there were some parts that did leave me wanting, and I think it actually kept me wanting a lot more than even even Matt was feeling towards the end of this album it it's it's still there but it's all focused on the vocalist as opposed to the song itself for me and that's that's the biggest shame of it that being said missing her was still a very interesting somewhat out of place but befitting to the album closing track it really did cement a whole new idea it was sort of the roundup force gumpy style piece to it which is the only way I can really look at it where he's sitting on the park bench again telling the story as opposed to seeing the story as it's progressing actually that, that's, a, that's a fairly good point it's not a bad way to put it considering that I did have that issue regarding the even regarding the theme which I did love in this album I thought that the theme was, was even backseat itself a backseat theme that feels like it was already done it was done years ago and I think maybe the the musical theme the musical arc suffered as a result because it just became this backdrop as opposed to like adamantly following the peaks and valleys of the events which is why Matt may have felt bored at times yeah I, I could definitely understand that and at the same and, and another thing that we talked about the voyeuristic nature of this of the album I was getting a little bit jealous when I felt like she was talking to me and the next song she was no longer there. But it did cement the idea that it wasn't something that you were supposed to be a character in. It was something you were supposed to be watching. And that kept the album as a whole for me on, on a personal level. It kept me from stepping into the shoes. For that, I'm right with Matt as far as rating goes. 425. It's it's solid, but there's just little elements that could have just fully gripped me. Okay. And with that, we go to our topic. This one is was inspired directly because of the subject matter of this album, jazz. Jazz has heavily influenced the video of its time, the, the movies and things of that sort. And vice versa, the movies of its time influenced jazz. And this is true of so many different types of music. They are influenced by what they're used with. The visual spectrum and what we see when we go to a theater or see in our television has made certain types of music, certain genres of music, represent very specific things. We think of jazz as a very sexualized music because 
it's just very prominently used as a sexual element in television, in movies. And also because no good decision happens after 2 a.m. That may be true. As we learned you know, from, I, I think, a couple, uh, I made How a I Met Your Mother or something. But um, but as far as, like, the whole 3 a.m. nightclub feel, as I keep going back to, sure. It's like we have these associations that it have that it has to fit in this specific niche. And, of course, that was then adopted by people who felt that it was a certain thing and therefore put it in all the movies of the time or in the right TV shows and all the, the right, the right uh, radio play slots such that all of a sudden now we have this kind of caricature of what jazz is. And while that may not be true for the people that are actually trying to do something with the genre and really, like, take it places and go in different directions, to them this is all, like, you know, besides the point, and it's just a big societal mistake. But still, society remains, you know, kind of perpetuating the notions, which is why, you know, we have our faults. And a lot of times you'll even hear over the course of this discussion, it's a lot of, like, things being thrown back and forth, little little connections that we make and that we draw from this music that seems highly indicative of a certain place and time and usage. Well, think about cliches on the macro. Cliches are based on generalizations. All cliches and and things that are exacerbated from cliches are based on very general knowledge not general knowledge but general knowledge of how i met your mother joke to reference what you were saying before hey Um, but but what i'm saying is you know because of the way some of these things are connected to the medium that they are shown in it's very easy if you don't have a broad knowledge of the topic or the or the musical genre or the style of movie you might think that they always just go hand in hand well, a lot of, um, especially with the advent of uh, uh, music videos, but even before that, when, like, say, beach rock. Beach rock is iconic for what it is because, well, think of Elvis Presley. He was making those movies On with beaches. his music. Yeah. Well, that's the same. It kind of just linked the two from the inception. And then it's also just, like, the same concept, that little, like, beach rock. Okay, well, if it's someone says it sounds like beach rock and they tell everybody it's beach rock, then all of a sudden it's like, well, I guess i got to play this at the beach. And then that's the same concept as the whole 3 a.m. thing. It's like, well, you've provided a time and a place and a setting, and wh- they're intricately linked, perhaps perhaps uh, to its detriment. Because that's even more narrow, and people really feel like like if you're even hinting at that, then you're going down a a slope that will just lock you in a thing that you can't escape from, which is unfortunate for musicians. I mean, think about modern pop. Modern pop is often linked to um, preteen fans, and often also linked to preteen shows. Think about Dawson's Creek. Think about you know, any ABC Family TV show that's on currently that I'm blanking on names now. But they're going to get the plain white tees or whoever has replaced the plain white tees since then. But but think about also, like, they have all of, I mean, even Paula Cole for Dawson's Creek. Like, Paula Cole was a fairly respected artist. I mean, she was known in the pop and kind of country pop community. And that song kind of solidified her as a pop musician, even if that's not quite what she was going for. It's this idea that when you hear these songs as either themes on shows or now more so integrated in shows for pivotal scenes having these songs like the season finale to the OC I believe had a very popular song that SNL spoofed in a in a shooting scene because that song was so tied to that pivotal finale moment it became almost a gag 
Well, it's one that's almost like the music equivalent of equivalent of typecasting, yeah. sort of. Um, and I, I suppose like what we started talking about is the fact that it can happen on on a genre scale, which yeah. is more unfortunate. It's it's almost inevitable that'll happen with like given songs. They get associated with one thing, and especially if that thing becomes a pop culture hit, then of course that's going to perpetuate. And you know, it's not the end of the world because ideally the artist would be like, all right, well I can let one song go. You know, all right, you can have that. That can be your TV show theme and I'm comfortable because I can always release new albums. But when that happens on a genre scale, that's that's more problematic because an artist may very well like that genre and wants to do different things with it, but in the public eye, they're just... they're a living trope. Well, I got two points to make to that. One is a song that's a trope, and that is All Along the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix. Because I've seen it overused in so many different television and movies... And granted, I love the song, and I've liked a lot of covers that have come out from it, but the content of the song never matches how it's being used. It just tends to be used as a closer song. That's its job. It's supposed to end an episode, or end a pivotal scene, or something of that sort, and that's it. That's all it is. But the song itself, I mean, when it was used in Battlestar Galactica, had no bearing on the entire story of what they were doing. It had no place. It had no time. But it was shoehorned as a closing song. As far as certain genres things can go, fly under the radar. Yeah. So that's not exactly uh, that's not the same example. For instance, some well, that wouldn't hit the same public height, despite of, that it was a popular show. <laughs> think of think of lounge music, lounge singers. Frank Sinatra will always be associated with lounge. That in itself itself is a little bit demeaning because why is it only for the lounge? Why is it only <laughs> in this? And it, it's supposed to be well, laid in that back case, and everything like that. In that it case, was... I'd argue that they dictated themselves. If you sing your music in lounges all the time, it's going to be called lounge music. But it's got to now, it, now it's it's typecast to be the sort of music that only gets played by the piano as you walk into Great Caesar, uh, to, to Caesar's Palace or something like that, yeah. to a casino, to a Vegas show, something like that. Well, Vegas compartmentalizes and appropriates everything, so, <laughs> but you know, it's... that's the worst example. And it's used as that piece for Ocean's Eleven and stuff like that, oh, like sure. big budget movies. I mean, that's where you heard that sort of music, and that's what you hear for that sort of theme work, for that sort of scene work. Yeah, okay, Frank is great. I love Sinatra. My grandmother taught me that, and I, I thank her every day. Well, you're Italian. You have to love Sinatra. Exactly. It's like a rule or something. It is. I'm only half Italian. I don't have to love him, but you I just do. have to go. You have to like him at least. Exactly, but. It's, it's kind of a shame that that sort of music seems to only have its place in those locations because of how it started, because of where it originated from. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that popular movies can influence perspectives, especially if you're not knowledge about it. Like, for example, I am f- very familiar, thanks to Noam and, and Sarah, my wife, with klezmer music more now than I ever was. But a lot of people's experience with anything related to klezmer or anything related to that at all comes from Fiddler on the Roof and kind of that kind of cliched kind of larger than life version of a lot of that music. Well, Fiddler on the Roof was like the the play, the musical that, that proved to people that the music 
that had been in in musicals for the last like 30 40 50 years going back to vaudevillian times yes is in fact all written by jews <laughs> it's like well now here we are actually writing a whole subject matter surrounding the jewish experience right and yes it is still written by jew uh, leonard bernstein sure. correct and it's like of course well, now it all kind of makes sense and it's like well it does it better than anyone but it showed that well it, it opened the door to the fact that yes it's being done for just about everything and that was the same kinds of like uh Klezmer influences had fit into other musicals, well, obviously, were going to be broadcast in a big way with Fiddler on the Roof. But with modern modern Klezmer music, it actually goes beyond that. And But you get you don't get a sense of that unless you seek that out. Like, you know, yeah. the kind of Jewish dancing that was done at my own wedding, of course, there's a lot of songs that are very familiar. If you've been to a bunch of Jewish weddings, you'll recognize the songs. It's not just Hava Nagila. But, but beyond that, you know, you forget that some songs within that genre are kind of quite expansive and far beyond that. But that was a popular musical that had a popular movie adaptation that kind of set the standard for a while. Right, but just the fact that the same guy wrote West Side Story. Sure. On, you know, about Puerto Ricans and, and wasps less, you know, uh, just... Uh, We're going to call them Jets and Yeah, well, sharks. yeah, sure, Jets and Sharks, yes. Well, essentially, you know what it is. Yes. <laughs> but it's like that, you know, by the same guy. So what my point is, is that it's like in that particular environment, through the slight technicality of there being a kind of underground, uh, partially to avoid anti-Semitism and whatnot, uh, experience that the Jews had, it's like that's kind of why you had that aversion to the public eye, but yet the Jewish klezmer music was still being applied in musicals and did find that out into several different areas. Yes, it's true, not everyone knows, uh, but may hate them, sure they def damn well knew from Fiddler on the Roof on. Sure. Still, it, it had an escape and it had it out. Um, a lot of genres don't have that, that ability, yeah. they, or this, they never found it. So just to go back to the previous point that you were making, John, when you were talking about, you know, with certain genres like lounge singing or like beach rock, the idea that these are genres that are actually defined by place. You made the point that they're, that, well, it's because of the environment that they were originally played at. Well, lounges were played in lounges. No, beach rock was not originally played on the beach, but it was applied to it. It was but the, the once you apply a, a name and place. Beach yeah, and once you apply in that name and place to it, then it's like, of course you're going to make that association. Um, it's a little more unfortunate with jazz, which is, well, it's not in the name, it doesn't apply anything in the name, but it's true, it was played in the time and place. Yeah. And that is the same three in the morning nightclub atmosphere as I keep going back to. And it's not something, to be fair here, it's not something that was purely dictated by the public in all of their uh, falsities and, and desire to label things. A lot of times it was just dictated by jazz musicians themselves. I had a jazz professor who flat out said some of my best ideas, actually all of my best ideas, will come at about 2 a.m. Because that's when he's working. Yeah. That's, you know, and if you're doing improvisation at a club, you might suss out some ideas while you're playing. Exactly. So that's the environment that they want to be in. So hence, why shouldn't we have the associations that go along with it? Well, it, it didn't hurt when, you know, the idea of the Maltese Falcon and everything that that represents was using noir music to create a noir setting and only doing that. It was just so much reiteration of the same thing over and over again. It's like with punk music. When, whenever you saw early punk music being played in movies, it was being associated only really with the punker. The spiky hair, the bleached colors, the pinks, the greens, the piercings, the tattoos, and a lot of denim. That's the perception equaling the music in movies, in television, and it created the punker, the ideal punk listener, 
which kind of never really left it. They've been grappling with an image. But but, yeah. but that kind of is influenced by the scene because in London and like when when Sex Pistols and bands like that were kind of getting big. That's how they dressed. I mean, think of Sid Vicious with the huge spikes and, you know, Johnny Rotten with the bright red hair. It's like that influenced the style, which then influenced the movie, which then again influenced the genre. So it was kind of a give and take. The kind of thing that, like, stereotypes are are, are not all just attributions. A lot of times they're based on fact. And then when you get to the point, you know, mid-arc where all of a sudden people are, are disproving the stereotypes and it becomes something that is fiercely independent, those stereotypes still remain and that probably ruins it for people at the end of the arc. Hair metal. I'm done. Well, Dropping the mic, walking away. That was again, so if it, heavily... if it's in the name. <laughs> well, yeah, and but it was, here's the problem. The only reason the it got scene, the though. name was because the guys that started doing stuff like that had big hair in their videos. But but that and had, on stage. but that had little to do with media or movie or TV. That was literally just the scene itself being ridiculous. And there were still bands that took advantage of it. I mean, think about Twisted Sister. Twisted Sister is a fantastic band and also subscribed to that hair metal style, but they blew it out of the water. They played more of a classic rock sound, but they dressed better than any of those bands probably and with bigger hair than any of those bands at the time. Dee Snider kind of took that back and kind of said, well, we can still be ridiculous and intimidating and rock and roll. You know, it was less about the hair metal at that point and more about just kind of having this glam over the top image. But the funny thing about this conversation is that it almost is like harkening back to that time in the 90s pre-internet era where all of a sudden things were just so segmented and you were into what you were into and mm-hmm. the groups didn't talk, you know, and if you, if you did you were just you were just this ostracized strange individual or maybe you just wouldn't be allowed in. Like that that whole ridiculousness surrounding that almost is kind of like what we're like touting right now because it flat out says like well if you if you if you accept that the stereotypes were probably true in their in their origins, then it's kind of like saying if you're not going to if you're going to suggest to someone else, hey, please do not judge this genre for what it is, but yeah, we kind of are what we are, then it almost demands that you have to embrace everything that surrounded the origin before you can properly get into the the uh, the the endpoints of the genre and where it might lead you. Like, do you have to be into step one before you're into step five? Or you can just pop in at three and pick and choose. Of course anybody can, but if you're talking about misconceptions, this is obviously why it exists. But there's no reason why you need to feel like you have to rock and or roll to listen to rock and roll. There's no reason you have to feel like a punker to listen to punk. That's well, the big the, issue here. When people think of rock, they don't necessarily think of rock and roll. They don't go back to that. If you listen to rock today, you're not. That's out of the association. It's managed but, to be but, independent. But that's the whole. That's that's my point. There's assumptions that you make with this music because of the scene that develops, because of its use in physical, visual media, because of its use. In, in a lot of different ways, that you can't listen to it because of one reason or another. That you can't get into jazz because it's too complicated. That you can't get into punk because it's too angry. That you can't get into metal because it, there's too much screaming going on. There's no reason to feel this way. And it's it's just a sad part of, of the way these, these misconceptions are built. Human nature and being a, a higher evolved creature, we have preconceptions. You can say that you don't prejudge, you're, you're not prejudiced, and you don't prejudge things, but it's almost impossible to never prejudge 
anything. You I try say, actually, not that's to... from being human. That is from being evolved from lower forms of creatures, where right. preconceptions were your way of avoiding a predator. You know, because it looks in a certain shape. But that said, I think that with active research and awareness, you can avoid or at least skirt those prejudgments. You can be aware of them, and I think that's really where the problem lies. Acknowledging that kind of prejudice or assumption allows you to then get around it. But until you actually have that kind of wherewithal to do that, you're kind of just going to base your life on assumptions and not bother to investigate. It's also very hard to erase that, though, once it's built. I mean, it's sure. our, you, you can't erase something in your mind. That's why you have to acknowledge it instead of trying to erase it. Yeah. It's, it's just a shame that looking back on it, Jazz is, because of, of, of the way it was built and everything like that, Jazz is just inexplicably linked to sex. Rock and roll is inexplicably linked to drugs. Like, the cultures were not the same character as the music that arose around it. And that's something that, like, today, it's it's much less of a problem. It's much less of, of in many cases, in many genres that are around right now and propagating. Well, this is why I was partially playing devil's advocate, of course. I don't think and everyone, you know, needs to go back to step one to enjoy, you know, all the different places that a genre may take you. But I do think that if we're limited, we have those... those brain limitations, you know, as you're bound to have because you can't go back and erase your preconception, it may very well help to at least go back and apply a little bit of empathy to the circumstances that may have surrounded uh, step one or the initial stereotype surrounding a genre, which is to say, well, if you're looking at jazz, which was our focus today, then try out. If you've never tried out the whole 2am uh, nightclub environment and listen to a jazz band its entirety, give it a shot candle on the table it's actually extremely romantic and you may find you have a newfound love for it apart from simply you know applying various ridiculous stereotypes to it that may keep you from enjoying it as a a more uh diverse art form as it is i think that as humans the moment we start accepting stereotypes not not for not making excuses for them but absolutely accepting them understanding them realizing that they're that and then finding ways around them or to make better through them is how you will move forward. You can't deny that they exist because then you're denying it. You're not learning or acknowledging anything. And I think that's really where this goes. I think that we need to be self-aware, and it's not always easy. But and, and hell, some people go backwards. I'd maybe give them Chikoria before you give them this. <laughs> That's true. Who knows? You could do that too. Um, I think this is a good place to go into our spam of the week. And then, Steve, I believe it is your pick. Yeah, yes. he's going to be talking a lot. It's, it's pretty nice. Well, that's typical. Spam of the week. I seldom comment, but I did a few search jing and wound up here. CCP episode 63, Leaving Eden by Carolina Chocolate Drops. Misspelt our own post. You'd think that would just be a copy and paste? Anyway, featuring Painless Parker. And I do have a couple off questions for you, if you do not mind. Could eat be just me, or does it seem like a few of the comments come across like left by brain-dead people? And a little silly face. And if you are writing at additional sites, I would like to follow everything fresh you have to post. Would you make a list of all, all of all of all of all your shared pages, like Facebook page, Twitter feed, and LinkedIn profile? Which, mind you, are all on the side of our page. Yes, on in, in little red bubbles. Anyway, that was by Nagy Kobidi. I I I I was enjoying the way that you were reading it, reading it, reading it like a robot. 
like a robot that's a skipping record. Thank you. Yes, the uh, pinnacle 1980s version of robotics. I was going to say, like, what's his name from Lawnmower Man? Or essentially anything built pre-Terminator. It was really just pre-Terminator stuff. That's fair. And or satires of stuff from before the Terminator. It's got to be the robot in me. I'm one one twenty eighth robot. I'm not surprised. On your mother's or father's side? Father's. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah. I, also unsurprising. A big familial problem. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to my choice. Next week, I am sealing my fate as a deviant of Crash Chords hey. and doing the next best thing short of tendering my resignation. <laughs> and that is bringing us right into the heart of the acid techno scene. Yes! <laughs> okay, maybe with one half of the Crash Chords team. Oh, this should be fun. Other than me, that is. I'm nosebleeds. Depends. Oh, we'll see, though, John. This is with the likes of Square Pusher. Square Pusher, I've heard of. Yes, yes. you should have heard of him because he's been around for a while. Yes. Uh, the name escapes me, but all that info will be there next week. I have known of Square Pusher for a very, very long time, ever since 2003, and I had many, many albums that I have that I had of his before, uh, as of 2003, reaching back to 97, maybe even earlier. He's prolific. He does a lot. He... Let's put it this way. I consider myself a fairly patient person regarding most of these genres and things. You know, I like complexity. I like things that take me down the wild side. He was the first artist that gave me a run for my money. I could not sit through. As a high schooler, I could not sit through a Square Pusher album. I tried it many times. It always failed. I always ran away into a corner and cried. I'm wondering if the familiarity of the name comes from our episode we did with Hops. I feel like when he came on, he might have mentioned Square Pusher. He may very well have. I feel like I'm oh, the I feel only like I would, one. I feel like I would have reacted or vomited or reacted. <laughs> I feel like I'm the only one that's going to enjoy this to its fullest. Now, to be clear, I actually enjoyed a few things he was doing at the time, and it seems like this album could approach a little more refinement. I don't know, but refinement is not his bag. I, refinement, he, he... Acid techno. I'm not... Acid... Com- Techno. If I, I <laughs> I'm not familiar with his work, so I cannot begin to prejudge because that would be wrong. Or I would embrace my prejudice and then still listen. Anyway, what's the new album called? The new album's name is Damaging Furies. Okay. All right. Well, be afraid. before I pass be out afraid. due to shock and dehydration, let us wrap up this episode by saying music is life and, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.